Thank you, Tracy family. What a beautiful song that would, is going to go right into our message this morning and coordinate so perfectly with it. The uh, ushers have Bible journals, and here's how these work. For some of you, you were like, what in the world are you passing out? Do you have new versions of the Bible? No, what this is, is this is Bible text on one side, lines to take notes in the other. And so if you would like to keep track of sermon notes and what God is doing in your life, um, then this is something that you can bring with you every time. I'm going to be preaching through the Gospel of John, and we're going to work through it. If you're a visitor with us, this would be our gift to you. So if you're a visitor, please take one and take it as our gift. If you're part of our church family and you would like one, uh, and you'd like to help cover the cost, they cost the church, as, as Ben said, about five bucks a piece to get them landed here. And uh, if you don't have that, don't worry about it. This is a way to get God's Word in your hands and to, uh, to make it as easy as possible to keep track of what God is doing in your life. I don't preach to just communicate information. We preach for the transformation of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God on your heart. And so as you take notes, you may say, Pastor Joe, how should I take notes in listening to a sermon? I would encourage you, if you write in your Bible or you have a Bible journal with you, to underline words that stick out to you. Maybe you want to take notes on on what God is doing in your life. And uh, yeah, if you're in first or third grade, you can slip out. Sorry. Try not to get offended every time half our church runs away when I'm trying to preach. But uh, first or third graders, you've got your children's church at this time. Uh, But uh, take notes. Keep track of what God's doing in your heart. I have notes in my Bible of ways that God has used his word to transform something in my life, to teach me something. And I often have a date next to it. And as you read through your Bible again, or as you pull that scriptural journal back off the shelf It's often so encouraging to to look back and see how God has used his word in your life. And so um, that's one way you can take notes. And often I'll I'll make notes as we go through a series. You know, if you have your scripture journal, circle this word. Note the connection here. And so that's why you'd have, you might choose to take advantage of that. We will have others available. So if you change your mind, you want one later, you can pick pick one up on the information center. and, And feel free to do that as we go on. I've, I really struggled with how to introduce this, this message, this series that we're going to be going through. And so I'm actually going to steal the line that Pastor Ben used this morning in my office as we were praying about the service, as we do every Sunday morning and meet as we are here early to talk through um, the details of the service and make sure that we're removing distractions as much as possible so we can focus on truth this morning. Um, He said, I don't often quote Pastor Ben positively from the pulpit, but um, this is one of those positive comments. And Pastor Ben said, John chapter one takes us to the heights of glory so we can in essence, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but live in the realm of the eternal in these few minutes. As it takes our minds and our hearts and we ascend to the majesty of heaven. I don't know how else to better describe what John does for us in his prologue of introducing Jesus as the divine son and true man. And so with that in mind, let's read John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 all the way down through verse 18 as we read the prologue to his gospel. 
Holy Spirit records through the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, talking about John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten son. The only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness. We have all received. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Oh God, as we enter into your gates and into your throne room through prayer, would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us see your Son as never before? May you help us identify him correctly. May we worship him appropriately. May our lives reflect him accurately. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. This morning, we are going to begin a journey through the Gospel of John. I don't know how long this journey will take. To give you an idea, this morning's message is on verse 1. Of chapter 1. If the Lord would tarry and God would be kind enough to allow us to partner together in the coming years, if God would, would give us grace to meet together and keep us together, I would like to lead us on a journey through the Gospel of John, straight into the book of Acts, and then through the book of Romans. That is probably going to take between 12 and 15 years to handle those three books. I say that because I had it as my personal goal to preach through the book of Romans twice in my lifetime. If God would allow me to live and pastor through the age of 70, that would place the book of Romans in the, first, the end of the first half of my preaching ministry and hopefully sometime in the second half as well. The Lord would allow that to, us to do that together here at Community. That would be my joy. 
And so finishing up the first half of what I would see if the Lord would tarry and give grace. And if some of you are like, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. And I get that. But for me, I find comfort in looking to the future and planning. And I would like to ask these three questions in the next 15 years here, community. (laughs) Who is Jesus? What is the church? And what should we believe? And if I think at the end of the next 12 to 15 years, we answer those three questions accurately and rightly according to Scripture, I think we would find success in the Lord's eyes. And so I lay that out before you to tell you where my mind is going so as we look into the words of Scripture, you know why we're doing this. Who is Jesus? The Gospel of John. What is the church unfolded for us in the book of the Acts of the early church and the Acts of the Apostles? And then what are the foundations of our core doctrine as lined out for us in the book of Romans? The reason I've chosen to do it in that manner is because the New Testament is organized in that way for you. The New Testament is not organized in the order of the, the, the dates that the books were written. It's organized in a polemical format that's a, it's a format that argues something in a way to unfold for you who is Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and unfold for you the history of the church, and then to understand the New Testament through the lens of the greatest doctrinal book ever written, the book of Romans, that everything else in the New Testament is to be read after you've understood the book of Romans. It's kind of how that's laid out in the wisdom. It's not inspired, but but it's a wisdom in the way that the church has organized the inspired writings of Scripture to lead us in that manner. And so that's where we're going if the Lord tarries and, uh, and we're all still alive and sane in 15 years, maybe we'll have an answer to these three questions, okay? So why study John rather than Matthew or Luke? I've led our church through the study of the Gospel of Mark. Why John? Why not, why not start at Matthew? In fact, I had somebody say, if you're going to do this, why not preach Luke-Acts? Because Luke wrote both Luke, obviously, and the book of Acts. In fact, they're meant to be put together as a series. So why not Luke and Acts? Well, the Gospel of John stands distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because of its doctrinal focus and its purpose, its argument. You'll hear me use the word polemic. That means an argument with a purpose to take you somewhere, to try to convince you of something. That it's written as a polemic specifically for the correct identification of who Jesus is. In fact, as the four Gospels are dealt with when you talk about them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels. You would say they give you a synopsis of the life of Christ. There's much shared information between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Much overlap. Matthew shows Jesus as the king come down to rule. Mark reveals Jesus as the suffering servant. And Luke reveals Jesus as the divine man, truly man. And inside of that, they they explain in their prologues, or assumed, but mostly explained, 
that they are recording the events of Jesus' life from, from a certain perspective. And so you have the accounts of life from three different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each with their own take. Matthew, um, very uh, analytical. Um, he would approach it as though a lawyer or an accountant would write. You've got Mark, who's a young man who's writing, sitting, listening to the account of Peter, and he's just kind of all over the map and fast-paced and kind of crazy. And then you've got Luke, who is a doctor, and so he's very specific. And if you, if you try to, to <laughs> engage with the Greek in Luke, he uses these massive words as a physician would. You ever sat down with a doctor and they explain to you what's wrong with you? And after five minutes later, you're like, I have no idea what you just said. Well, reading Luke in the original is kind of like that. You're like, he uses these complex words as he explains it from a physician's perspective. All inspired scripture as God moved their pens along. However, John is different. Not in the inspired way. John is inspired and is still the word of God, obviously. But, but John is different. John is not a synoptic gospel. In fact, some would even see up to 90% of John as unique from the other Gospels. I mean, nowhere else do you have the raising of Lazarus. Nowhere else do you have the water turning to wine. Nowhere else do you have the woman at the well. John is different. In that as John is writing, he is actually writing not just to give you a synopsis of Jesus' life, that's kind of a byproduct. But John is writing as a polemic to make sure that you identify who Jesus is correctly. In fact, let's go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I want to show you this. He gives you the purpose of his writing. Look at John 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. In other words, I've written these specific things so that, there's this purpose, here's why I've written this to you, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. It's his purpose. Hey, this is why I'm writing this to you. One of the ways, so, so what, what's the theme? In, in what way does he build that case? One way you can determine the theme of what somebody is talking about or, or what they love or the major argument, if you've, ever, if you've ever tried to do this from a literary standpoint, is to look at how many times certain words are used and how many times certain subjects are talked about. So if you were to do that with the Gospel of John, you would recognize and find the following, that 101 times in this Gospel, John uses the word to believe or faith. Greek word pistuo. The, the belief, faith, 101 times. 47 times. He uses the word that is translated to bear witness or give witness of. Martyros, he gives... 56 times the word life, 63 times he references love with both agapao and philos. He references light 24 times. We saw that a lot in the prologue, didn't we? Life, light, light, life, light. 
55 times he references the word truth. And 147 times he uses both the word gnosko and oida to communicate the word know. You must know. Two different ways he can approach that. And he does them both. I'm writing that you would know this. And so the theme of the Gospel of John is that you would know, believe, and bear witness to the true life, light, and love of God as seen in Jesus. That's the theme of the Gospel of John. From my perspective, as I've studied this out over the last several weeks, as best as I can tell, the theme of the Gospel of John is that you would know, believe, and bear witness to that is head, heart, and feet. Know, believe, and bear witness to Obey the true life, light, and love of God. Seen in the person, revealed, manifested in the person of Jesus. And the purpose for which he's written, we read in John 20, 31, that you may believe. And belief is a result of understanding And knowing and possessing and confessing the truth that God implants that faith inside of you. And the result of that belief is that you would have life. And not just any life, but life in his name. So the entire gospel is written to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is not a question of of relationship. Do you love Jesus? This is not a question of relativity. Who is Jesus to you? Well, he's my friend. Well, he's someone who sits beside me in the car. He's someone who, who moves me along. Someone who helps me. Those are, those are relative relationship discussions. And don't take this the wrong way. I love you very much as my church. God's given me a deep love for you as our church. But I don't really care how you feel in this aspect here. Because the identity of Jesus is not about what you feel. We're asking the question based on truth and fact here of who actually is Jesus. Who, what has, or who has the the scripture revealed him to be? This is a question that we will answer with truth and then call you to believe. Because it may not be what you believe. It may be what you think you believe, but once it's revealed, you may say, wow, I believed in a Jesus, but that Jesus wasn't this Jesus. So the answer given to us in chapter 20, verse 31, is that you may believe Jesus. And John summarizes basically the entire gospel of John. Perhaps you're traveling through and you're visiting with us this morning. Like this is the only time I'm going to be at Community Baptist Church my whole life. And so I'll summarize the entire gospel of John for you because you're going to miss the rest of the series, right? Unless you come back in the next seven or eight years. Um, 
Who is Jesus? Number one, Jesus is the Christ. That's what he says. Jesus is the Christ. And there's a lot wrapped up in that name, that title, Christ. Christos. He's the promised Messiah that the Jews had longed for. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law. There is a misrepresentation of Jesus. And I'm not saying you should not watch the chosen, but there is a misrepresentation, unbiblical statement that Jesus makes about himself that's in the previews to the next chosen that you need to know. And Jesus saying, someone asking him, have you come to, to, to fulfill the law? And Jesus, according to the chosen, says, I am the law. And Jesus, according to God, says, no, you're not. You fulfilled the law. Jesus is not the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law. In fact, when I was watching some sports, something, and that came on, I yelled at the TV. No! That's not right. So therefore, watch The Chosen for entertainment, but don't get your theology from it. Because that's wrong. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus is Messiah. He is Christos. He's Christ. Sorry if I get passionate about that, but that really bugged me. This was the message of the early church, that Jesus is the Christ, okay? Listen to the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Listen to his application. This is Peter's invitation at the end of his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 39. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and I, I know for certain that he pointed, that you crucified. Right? It's the original PowerPoint. Coming right out in Acts chapter 2, right there. This Jesus, whom you crucify, he is Christ. That's the message of the early church to all the Jews. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So what John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, his purpose for writing the book is that you would believe that he's the Christ. Secondly, that you would believe that he is the Son of God. Who is Jesus in the most basic form, the most basic truth that you need to understand? He is the Christ and he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And we're going to go into more detail on these two terms as John unfolds this through both his, his narrative in his, in his teaching in his narrative of writing, and also in the account that he gives of Jesus' life. And secondly, he's the Son of God. So throughout the Gospel of John, we will see that Jesus is truly God and truly man. In the person of Jesus, we see the union of God the Son and human flesh. To say that Jesus was anything but the full essence of God is to be wrong. Or to say that Jesus was anything but total and complete humanity is also error. You must have both. It is a misidentification of the Jesus of the Bible to say anything less then Jesus was, is truly God and truly man in every way. I was sitting in a, um, a talk 
that a lady was giving to support a pro-life cause, which we were there to support pro-life causes, which we partner with here in the area. And I was at a table with uh, some of our staff here from the, from the ministry, and, uh, and it, was a great, it was a great talk that this lady gave, motivating to pro-life causes, but in it, she dipped her toe into theology, and she made an incorrect statement. She said, she referenced Jesus, and she said, you know, God with skin on. And friends, that is an inaccurate statement. We must be very careful because what that communicates is somehow you've got this glowing, deified being who just happens to wear skin, like a costume. And it, it, it nullifies, it pushes to the side the absolute and complete and total humanity of Jesus. You say, why is that important? Because if he was not truly man, He cannot be your substitute for sin on the cross. He cannot stand in your place. So these are important things that we have to be careful. Am I throwing stones at the chosen? Am I throwing stones? No, it was a great talk. I was so glad to be there. But in that moment, it grieved my heart. Because for those who are sitting, who are not listening with discernment, all of a sudden had an unbiblical picture of who Jesus is. So we must be so careful, friends. We must identify Jesus correctly. Why? Because everything about your Christian life revolves around who you believe Jesus is. Satan's tactic is not to tell you that Jesus didn't exist. Satan's tactic is to take the person and work of Jesus and twist it so that there's just enough truth to draw you in, but just enough error to send you to hell. Every cult, every false religion, their identity of Jesus comes straight from hell. You say, that's a strong statement. Let me prove it to you. When you examine the cults and false religions of today, you will notice that every single one of them accepts a character in their religion named Jesus. In other words, I don't stand up before you and reference Joseph Smith as being a good man or a prophet of Christianity, and yet the Mormons will reference Jesus as their savior. But the Mormons identify Jesus this way. Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit child of the heavenly father and a heavenly mother and the spirit brother to Lucifer. Jesus then, as this spiritual offspring, progressed to become deity in the spirit world. He was later physically conceived in Mary's womb by a physical union between God the Father and Mary. Is that your Jesus? Because that's not my Jesus. Friends, we're talking about a different Jesus here. That's not the same Jesus. And yet if you were to go to a Mormon and you were to say, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? They would say, oh yes, I have. And you would say they're brother in Christ. And you say, no, they're not. Because their Jesus is not this Jesus. It's a different Jesus. It's a twisted Jesus. It is a false God. It's different. And John is writing to make sure you don't make that same mistake. Friends, let's be discerning and be careful. The Jehovah's Witnesses 
believe that Jesus is a created being, created by God the Father, just like the Archangel Michael. This is from their website and from their teachings, and I'll pull some from their Bible later and show you their errors. These were both created before the physical world existed. Jesus, according to their beliefs, though possessing some of the attributes of God, is a lesser God than Yahweh. They call him Jehovah. They believe that Jesus was merely human while on this earth and was not bodily raised from the dead, but only spiritually raised from the dead. Is that your Jesus? Because that's not this Jesus. It's a false God. Muslims believe that Jesus was one of the five greatest prophets to ever live, probably the greatest prophet other than Muhammad. He was born of the Virgin Mary. However, according to Islam, Jesus is is not God nor the Son of God. They believe that Jesus did not die on the cross but merely fainted and was strengthened by resting in the tomb for three days. Thus, he never resurrected and we could go on and on. Is that your Jesus? Because that's not this Jesus. That's a Jesus crafted by Satan to distract you or if you're unsaved, to draw you away into eternal condemnation, it's the most important thing that you'll ever know is the real Jesus. You have to get Jesus right. Your eternity demands it. We do not have any room in our biblical beliefs for Joseph Smith, nor Charles Russell, or Mohammed. Yet each one of these false religions claim to accept a person named Jesus as part of their religion. It's a tool from Satan, friend. Don't buy into it. Don't let them tell you we're the same because you're not if you're a believer. Satan's tactic is to misidentify and misrepresent Jesus then convince you that Satan's aberration of Jesus is the real thing. John's gospel outlines for us the correct identification of who Jesus is. You say, Pastor Joe, why are we going through the gospel of John? That's why. There's nothing wrong with Matthew and Luke. They're wonderful books that one day I would love to preach through and lead you through. But that's why we're doing this now. Everything in your life revolves around your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Everything. The goal of the Christian life is to identify him correctly and then know him to the best of your ability through the word of God. This goal drives us to devote ourselves to a passionate pursuit of scripture. When we do this carefully and discerningly, we begin to understand that Christ is the very center and focus of our holiness. Our sanctification, our Christian growth revolves around Jesus. Your Christian growth is in direct proportion to your love for Christ. Your love for Christ is in direct proportion to your knowledge of the Scriptures. Because you cannot love someone that you do not know, and you know Jesus through the Bible. 
So therefore, if you do not know the Bible well, you cannot grow in your Christian walk to a great extent because you do not know Jesus well. And perhaps you think you have correctly identified Jesus, yet you do not know your scripture. And friend, if that is you, you are in a dangerous place. Because the identification of genuine faith is that as you discover who Jesus is, you continually, through the pages of Scripture, say, that's my Jesus, that's my Jesus, that's my Jesus, that's my Jesus. And someone who has accepted a false Jesus, when they get to know through the pages of Scripture who Jesus is, they jet. And they leave. And they say, I'll accept a Jesus, but I don't like that one. I don't like that one. So I tried the Jesus thing and it didn't work. And if you ever have somebody say that to you, your response should be, friend, you haven't tried my Jesus. You may have tried a Jesus, but you haven't tried the right one. The word of God gives us knowledge of Christ, which develops our love for Christ. And as we love Christ more and more, we see his attributes, we see his qualities coming out in our life. And what do we call those attributes and those qualities coming out in our life? We call them the fruit of the Spirit. And so the goal of this series through the Gospel of John is to develop your love for Christ through the pages of Scripture so that we will end this series different people than we started. Because through this series, God will change you. He will change and deepen your love and your belief. Some of you will, I don't mean to be morbid, but some of you will have the blessing of being graduated to heaven before we finish the Gospel of John. And at that point, you won't need this anymore. What a blessing that would be. This love for Christ that will be fueled in your heart through this book will do many things. I've written down three. First of all, it will chase out the love for sin in your life. When your heart is full of a love for God, there is no love for sin there. That's why in 1 John, he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Whoever has the love of the world dominating his life, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because when your heart is full of the love of God, when you love him, there's no room for love for sin. Does that mean you're perfect? No. It means that sin has, its claws are dulled. It's, it loses its teeth. That, that taste for sin that perhaps as an immature Christian now you have so strongly will, will be tempered by your love for Christ. Secondly, this love for Christ will cast off the, bond, the bonds of legalism, of just rule following in order to gain God's favor. Because you're no longer motivated to keep a list of rules so God will love you more, which you can't do anyway. You're motivated in your life by a love for God. 
and, and the chains, right, that have bound you, you're living your Christian life free. Free in your love for God. Free to live in grace. Free to live in holiness and sanctification because you're motivated by love. And those ugly chains of legalism have been shattered. And thirdly, this love for Christ is the water and nourishment to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit from a regenerate heart. So it waters your soul. But the living water of Christ. So the fruit of the Spirit will burst forth. So with that in mind, let's look at John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1. 1, 1. Hopefully your page isn't full yet. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 1 of chapter 1, John gives us three immutable, unchanging, unshakable truths about Jesus. The first is that he reveals to us the eternality of the Son. Matthew begins his gospel tracing the line of Jesus back to Abraham. Mark begins his gospel with the, the coming out of Christ at the baptism, the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in the baptism of Christ. Luke traces the genealogy. Uh, you know, he used a lot of words. Who doesn't get to the genealogy until chapter 3? But you get to Luke chapter 3 and you see the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. It's fascinating. But friends, John says in the beginning. And when he uses that word beginning, he means the beginning of the beginning. Because the two words he uses are N-R-K, in the beginning. And for every Jew who was reading John's gospel, they would open up their Greek Old Testament and they would say, is John quoting Genesis 1-1? Because it's the same words. N-R-K, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins, in our day, in the beginning, before time, before the foundations of the world, in the beginning of the beginning, before time had ever started. And if you're like my son, you say, when I think about that, it makes my tummy hurt. In the beginning, was. It's a statement of being, not a statement of becoming. It's not the word became, that will come later. It's a little word. It's a statement of being, unchanging. It just is. It never started. It will never end. It can never change. Is. Was. 
verb is an amy verb in, in the Greek, but it's something that exists in a state that always exists in that state. You see, you and I are perpetually in the state of becoming. I'm not now what I was one second ago. My body isn't, my mind isn't, I'm constantly learning, observing, taking things in, remembering, forgetting, growing hair, losing hair, gaining weight, losing weight, right? Like a river that's constantly flowing, it's never the same twice, it's in a constant state of becoming. But friends, God is in a state of being. He cannot change, for that would include either a change for the better or a change for the worse, which he cannot because he's infinite. Or it would include a change of maturity, of growth, which he cannot because he's infinite. So in this little word, Hain, was, we find the being of God. The aseity of God, if you want a term for it. Because in the beginning of the beginning, before the beginning, in the foundation of the world, God. But then John pivots, right? You'd expect him to say God, but he doesn't. He doesn't even say Jesus, because that'd be too simple. He doesn't say Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Why would he do that? You'll see in our English translations, that word is rightly capitalized, logos. Something or someone specific in a proper way. And John here is referring to Jesus. 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Revelation 19, 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is called the word of God. The Logos. The Word. So why didn't John just come out and use Jesus' name? Why didn't he just say what he means? Or why didn't he use the title of Christ? Or why didn't he say the Son of God? Or something like that. Why use the word Word? Two reasons. Actually, I'll give you three. Three reasons. Number one... Because Jesus is the revelation of God. We saw that in our scripture reading, didn't we? In times past, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. Through who? Through his son. And so this, this, phrase, this word logos, the word, shows us that Jesus is the very revelation of God. The exact imprint of his nature. John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I not been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because I am the very revelation of God. I am the Word of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. 
And so the first reason why John would refer to Jesus as the Logos, as the Word, is because Jesus is the revelation of God. Secondly, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament phrase, the Word of the Lord. And once again, as these Jews were reading their Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and as they were reading that, they would have seen the phrase over and over and over again. The Logos of God, the Word of God. And so, so he's drawing their attention to his Jewish audience in a brilliant way under the inspiration of God to draw the Jewish mind back to the Old Testament and the creative acts of the word of the Lord as it came forth, as the prophets stood and they, they called the word of the Lord. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Matthew Henry says it this way, the Hebrews would often paraphrase Messiah as the word of Jehovah, speaking of many things in the Old Testament, said to be done by the Lord as done by that word, capital W, of the Lord. Even the vulgar or the common Jews were taught that the word of God was the same with God. Thy word is preserved forever in heaven. And so to his Jewish audience here, John is appealing to their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and drawing a direct line to the Old Testament fulfillment of this same context of the word of the Lord. It's often attributed with God's creation acts. It's often attributed to God's miracles. God speaks, of the, God speaks and the universe is created. He speaks and nations are judged. He speaks and people are blessed and healed. And thus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there because brilliantly, John is also drawing in all of his Greek audience because it's kind of a it's kind of a complex topic and if you want if you're if this piques your interest you can go and you can do more research of the the phrase uh, logos in Greek uh, L-O-G-O-S in, in the Greek philosophical mindset and the Greek philosophers would speak much of these unsafe philosophers would use this word, logos, word, to, to communicate the very center of a person's being. To communicate um, it, the very center of knowledge. That you would have to come into, in, in, into the center of logos in order to gain wisdom, in order to be enlightened. There's really the best way maybe you could explain it in, in an English word. But, but to be enlightened, you would have to understand logos. And then you would become this enlightened person who would be wise and then could... It was huge with the Stoics, as even Stoicism is, is raging back today in ways you might not recognized of this I've gained this this light and I've gained this knowledge without God and I've I've come to to be totally fulfilled and I've found my purpose in life 
I found my calling. I found my purpose. And when someone says that outside of a context of God, that's the concept here that the Greeks would phrase in this word logos. And so John, in his brilliant way, is drawing in all the Greeks, all the Jews, and tying it to the person of Jesus. He is the purpose. He is the light that you're looking for. He is this inner life that you seek. As we would say here at Community, He's the hole in your life that you need to fill. It's Jesus. In the beginning was the Logos. D.A. Carson would reference this concept this way. The Stoics understood Logos to be the rational principle by which everything exists. I found my center. I found my purpose. And again, all those would be things that people would say outside of, of, of Christianity or outside of God. We found God to be our center, God to be our purpose. Uh, that which is the essence of the rational human soul. As far as, as the Greek philosophers were concerned, there is no other God than Logos, this thing that they were searching for, this purpose that they were finding. And all that exists were seeds of, of logoi, uh, were, were purposes that you would say, oh, if you found the purpose, we're both connected to Mother Nature and so we could feel each other's energy. And you can see how it's still prevalent today, right? And, and we've kind of found our, our purpose and our connection all together. And John is just bringing all the Greeks in and he's saying, that's Jesus. What you're searching for what your heart yearns for, what your soul longs for, is Jesus. And he ties it with his eternality. In the beginning was. State of being. First thing. The next two are really quick, okay? Number two, the distinction of the sun. The distinction of the sun. And the word, the same word, Jesus, and everything that that comes with it, was, there's our state of being again, didn't become, but was with God. And with that, that word with carries this idea of relation to the Father and his relationship with the Father of love. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, in eternity past, existing before anything was created. For, they are, for, for, for God is the uncreated one, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Their relation with each other in, in eternity, their eternal relation, is that the Father, because he's a Father, is begetting life to the Son. And so here the Word was with God. And his relationship, seen in John 17, which we'll get to, is that the Father is pouring out his love on the Son. And this is where your mind goes, what? When you think about these concepts in eternity past, that that God doesn't need you to be a loving God. He's been loving for all of eternity. And it's the, here the distinction between the Son and the Father. Because the Son existed from eternity past, but there's a distinction within the Trinity. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. 
And the Spirit is not the Son, nor is the Spirit the Father, yet they're all one essence in the Trinity. And yet John is building this Trinitarian formula to say that the Word was with God. So with this one phrase, we have this beautiful picture of both the eternality and the distinction of the Son. And then he brings it all together with this clash of saying there's, the Son is eternal, and, but the, yet the Son is distinct, and the Son is divine. There's our third one, divine. The Word there's our word, our word of being again, not of becoming, but of being. The word was God. Unequivocally, Jesus is God. The Bible does not say that Jesus became God. It states that the Son was God from eternity past in a state of being. There's a false claim that the Jehovah's Witness will tell you about in this verse that you need to be ready for. Normally, I I like to be more preachy than teachy, but this is something that you need to know. You need to know because the Jehovah's Witness will come to you. They may come to your door and they may make a statement and say, well, Jesus isn't God. He's actually a God. And if you look in the Greek, I'll show you. First of all, that's not, you just need to know, first of all, that's not true. It's not true at all. It's like someone who took one class and thinks they're, they have a medical degree and they know just enough to really damage you and not enough to fix you. So the Jehovah's Witness will come and they will say in Greek, there is, if you look at the end of verse 1, there's a definite article. The word, the word, halagos, the, the definite article, the word was with God. And halagos, the word, the individual word, was, and then there's no definite article, it's just God. And so they will say, without a definite article, there should be an indefinite article there. The word was a God. Because there's no definite article, right? So yeah, the word was God, but the word was a God. The word, ha-logos, there's a definite article, and they'll turn around their Greek and they'll show you. And they are right in their facts. There is no definite article. But that's not the way the Greek language works, friend. They have taken this little thing and they've twisted it to mean something that it's not. The article is not necessary for that word to be definite. And I'll give you an example. Look down in verse 49 of chapter 1. And this is where, in your Bible, you need to underline square and uh, to the side write J-W wrong. Okay? Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's how our Bible reads. And if you were to pull up the JW Bible, it would say, Nathanael responded, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Theos there, you're Son of God. You are King of Israel. Whoa, Jehovah's Witnesses, where did your... There's no article before the word king. If you're going to put it in John 1.1, 1, 1, you have to put it in John 1.49. Why didn't you do it there? Because it didn't suit your purposes to create a false doctrine. That's why. Because they don't believe that Jesus is equal with the Father. And so they insert into Scripture 
a false narrative. Also, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, right? But in that second word, truth, aletheia, there, there's no definite article. So the JW Bible should read, your word is a truth, but it doesn't. It says, sanctify them by means of the truth. Your word is truth. Whoa, JW, same situation here. There's something more going on than an enlightened Greek understanding. It's a false understanding. In fact, the article cannot be there. It can't be there. Why? Because, and I know I'm getting really technical, but please see, see if you can understand this. He says, the word was God. Halagos, the word, the definite article, the. If he were to say, halagos was ha theos, then he would be saying that the word was the only God. And he would therefore be saying that the Father and the Spirit were lesser gods. So the way that the Greek sentence is structured, do not be lied to, friend. It's not true. The way that the sentence is structured is that Jesus is unequivocally and unapologetically and any other superlative you want to put in there, divine in every way, equal with God, co-equal, co-eternal. And that's just verse one. Aren't you excited, friend? I mean, am I the only one that sees this kind of stuff and says, God, and yet you love me. And yet you saved me. When you love me with the same love that you love your son. How humbling. How undeserving. The question is very simple. Is this your Jesus? It may not be. And if it's not, God's calling you to believe that you might find life in his name. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so grateful for the truth that you are revealing to us through your word. May we never take it lightly. May we be discerning in our beliefs. May you keep us centered on your truth and may your word drive everything about us. May it develop a love that's unquenchable in our heart that drives us to sanctification and holiness. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, in this moment of response and reflection, can you respond to where the Spirit is working in your life? Would you take a minute and fellowship with this God who loves you or this God who is drawing here? Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to bow your knee to Jesus. You need to believe him for who he is. Submit your life to him. Align your heart under him as your king. 
call out to him in forgiveness, for forgiveness. And you will find a God who places his love on your life. Wherever God's stirring in your heart, before we go back in the busyness of this day, will you respond and reflect? 